1: Welcome to today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host Jenny Alstrom, and we'd like to thank our episode sponsor, GlaxoSmithKline, for their support of Myeloma Crowd Radio. Now, before we get started with today's show, we'd like to share an update on the tool we created called HealthTree. We created HealthTree to help you as a myeloma patient better navigate your disease. You can track everything about your myeloma in a single place. You can see personally relevant treatment options, You can find clinical trials you're eligible to join, and soon you'll be able to find your twin or other myeloma patients with similar features and chat with them anonymously, if you'd like, or um, as you get to know them in person, if you'd like. Now, we'd like to announce that you can now automatically import your lab records from your online portal at a hospital if your facility has integrated with Apple Health. This includes over 900 hospital systems throughout the United States. It requires an iPhone, or our HealthTree support team can also do this for you at your request if you don't have an iPhone. Um, Because many myeloma patients are being at several centers, this gives you a way to bring in all your lab data accurately and easily uh, without having to do that manually. Um, So we're super excited about that feature and invite you to join HealthTree and help track your myeloma in a single place. Now, on to today's show, I'd like to introduce Dr. Clifford Reed. He is the founding CEO of Travera. Previously, Dr. Reed was the founding chairman, president, and CEO of Complete Genomics, a leading developer of whole human genome DNA sequencing technologies and services. And prior to Complete Genomics, he founded two enterprise software companies, Eloquent, an internet video company, and Verity, an enterprise search engine company. Dr. Reed is on the Visiting Committee of the Biologic, Biological Engineering Department at MIT, a member of the MIT Corporation Development Committee, and an advisor to the private equity firm Warburg Pincus. He earned a Bachelor's of Science in Physics from MIT, an MBA from Harvard Business School, and a PhD in Management Science and Engineering from Stanford University. Dr. Reed's is now working on a new approach towards more personalized myeloma treatment. As we know, each of our, us are unique as myeloma patients and our myeloma can change over the course of our care, which makes things extra complicated. He is now testing how an effective how effective a treatment or treatment combination might be before it's given to a myeloma patient through his work at Trevera and we are very excited to learn about this new approach. So, Dr. Reed, welcome.
0: Thank you for having me, Jenny.
1: Yeah, we're excited to hear more about your program and uh, what this can do. So maybe you just want to start by giving us a new, an overview of this approach in general because it's really a completely different concept uh, in terms of trying to personalize medicine. We hear about personalized medicine all the time by targeting genomics with specific type of drugs or other types of things. But this is a really unique approach. Can you hear us? Dr. Reed, I can't, oh, we can't hear you. I think he's going to call back in. He may have not had a good connection. While he's calling back in, I do want to share a little bit more about um, the updates that we have at Health Tree just because um, it's been amazing. We had, we had a patient who entered all their um, information automatically and was just so stunned. I know sometimes patients will try to track their lab values or their key myeloma markers in um, multiple places, like on a spreadsheet or something like that. Um, I think he's back on.
0: Somebody muted me. My apologies. I'm not quite sure how that happened. Um, so. Oh, yeah, let, I'm let not just, sure
1: that happened, how that happened either. I think it was a connection issue. Okay. No, go uh,
0: ahead. Great. Thanks so much, Jen. I appreciate it. As I, as I mentioned, I've been very engaged in the uh, genomic sequencing business for, for many years as the CEO of Complete Genomics, um, and have, you know, seen the results of personalized medicine for cancer be not quite what we had hoped. And in particular, as you well know, there are no biomarkers for myeloma patients. So we're taking a completely different approach. And let me tell you just a little bit about it. Um, It's based on two things. It's based on a new invention and a new discovery. So first, the new invention. This is an invention created at MIT, which is simply a scale for weighing single cancer cells with exquisite accuracy, about 100 times more accurate than any other method for weighing single cells. So that's the invention. Then the discovery is a um, part that was done by uh, MIT scientists and Dana-Farber oncologists. And what they discovered is that cancer cells lose a tiny amount of weight very quickly in response to effective cancer drugs. And this was, the amount of weight they lose was previously much too small to be measured, but that's what the invention does. So using the combination of this new invention and this new discovery, we can create a new cancer drug effectiveness test. And what we do is collect patients' live cancer cells, expose them to many different drugs, I know ex vivo in our lab, not not in the patient, measure the weight response of the cells to each drug, and determine which of the drugs will be effective for that particular patient at that particular moment in time.
1: Well, that's fascinating because, as we know, myeloma changes over time. So the disease that you have when you're first diagnosed is not necessarily the disease that you have um, after your relapse, or even after a second or third relapse, because your disease might be changing. Some some patients have disease that's similar, but um, there's quite a bit of genetic um, instability or genetic genomic changes that are occurring. So to be able to weigh the cells uh, and have that tell is that's truly amazing.
0: Yeah, and, um, and you're, you ex- you've hit you've yeah. Hit the- no, You've you've hit the key point, is that we we don't care about the genetics of the cells because, as you said, the genetics are changing, and we don't really know yet um, everything about the genetics and how to map them to drugs. So by just measuring the weight change of the cell, this is a uh, drug-independent and cell-independent method of determining which drugs are going to work for which cancer patients.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. We did a show earlier with Dr. William Matsui, and he was kind of expressing the challenges of this kind of older precision medicine approach where you try to match a genetic mutation with a particular drug. And he was just saying how difficult that's going to be and how long that will take to do um, and to identify. And I know nationally they've run a study uh, trying to do that in a variety of cancers for a particular mutation, and the results weren't that great. So... This is um, an amazing approach to be able to just weigh the cells. Can you go into a little more detail about the process um, and maybe a little more detail about the new invention? Because um, it might be a little complicated to describe, but I think patients would be interested in understanding um, how that works.
0: Sure. Up to now, the way you weigh cells is with a microscope. You take a picture of them, you find out their diameter, and then you multiply by volume and density to get the weight. We don't do that at all. What Scott Manalis and his team at MIT invented is a a MEMS device. This is a, a little chip that's manufactured in a semiconductor fabrication facility. And what is built into this little chip is a diving board. It's a little diving board. The fancy word for that is cantilever. Um, and the diving board has a fluidics channel that runs down to the end of the diving board and back. Every diving board has a natural resonant frequency, and the natural resonant frequency is directly proportional to the mass of the diving board. So what we do is we take a single cell, we flow it down the diving board, and we measure the change of its resonant frequency, and by making that measurement, we can extremely accurately measure the weight of the single cell without harming it. Um, The the accuracy of measurement is about one part in a billion. That means we can detect a change of a single cell um, diameter, the equivalent of the microscope method, of about three nanometers. Now, what's a nanometer? The wavelength of visible light is 400 nanometers. This is 100 times more accurate than any microscope can ever be due to the laws of physics. So it's an extraordinary invention that for the very first time gives us the ability to measure these tiny, tiny little weight changes measured in femtograms and picograms. No one's ever been able to measure before, but it turns out cancer drugs that work on cells cause them to shrink by a few picograms. And for the first time we can measure it.
1: Wow. That's amazing. Okay. So when the patient is donating a sample, are they donating a blood sample? Are they donating a bone marrow biopsy sample? And then um, we'll, I have a whole bunch of questions uh, about how you process those samples.
0: All right. Let's start with the sample itself. Yeah. Unfortunately, there simply aren't enough myeloma cells in peripheral blood for us to run our tests. So we can't do this yet with a blood sample. We do require a bone marrow sample.
1: Well, that makes sense. <laughs> Most most of the critical tests are being still run on a bone marrow sample. Uh, we're always hopeful, yep. um, but uh, that's great. That's it's it's. I think well understood by patients that that's going to be necessary. Okay. Um, and then you said it doesn't really. You're not necessarily testing um, genetics. It's genetic agnostic. It doesn't make sense. It and it doesn't sound like you're growing up a culture of these cells. So when you get the bone marrow biopsy um, and you're testing it against different uh, samples, like how many cells do you need? Is uh, the bone marrow sample quality ever an issue? Um, because sometimes when we go in and get a bone marrow biopsy, they're sending it for genomic testing and they're sending it for this and they're sending it for that. Um, so how do, you, how do you use that sample?
0: Yeah, so your, your, your premise is exactly correct. We do not take the cells and then culture them, try to get them to, to grow up and proliferate in the dish in order to create more cells. And there, there's, the key reason we don't do that is because, as you probably know, there are many examples of drug effectiveness tests based on proliferating cancer cells in the lab that simply haven't worked. And and we now know that when you grow up cancer cells, because they are so genetically damaged to start with, they do not reproduce themselves faithfully. And the culture that you grow up ends up living, but it doesn't any longer um, accurately reflect those cells as they exist in the patient. So fortunately, our technology uses very few cells. So we don't have to grow them up to get enough cells to use. We can just use the cells that we get from bone marrow specifically. The, the number of cells that we require to test a drug for a patient is 1,000, and that's just one drug. Mm-hmm. So we, we test a panel of many drugs, and so we need a, a, only a few tens of thousands of cells to be able to do the test. A typical bone marrow biopsy, first pull of a bone marrow biopsy, will have millions of cells, you know, at least a million. Um, and that's typically the number of cells required to do genetic testing. But our test, because it's a single cell test, we only need a very small number of cells. So we can sort of coexist nicely with the genetic testing uh, assays that require a lot more sample than we need.
1: Mm -hmm. And then when you're looking at the different combinations or treatments, I mean, there are so many different options. You have like 30 to 40 treatment combinations now that you can use. Like you can, are you testing them individually first do you then test them, in, like in a doublet or a triplet or a quad? I, I mean, what's your process to to go through all the different myeloma therapies that are available to be tested?
0: Yeah, there are two answers to that. The first is our clinical study that we're running right now, and there we are testing mostly triplets and quads uh, because what we are testing in our study is the exact combination that the oncologist plans to give the patient. So we want to you know get the bone marrow, run that therapy or or combo therapy against the cells, make a prediction of whether or not the the drug is going to work, and then have the oncologist give the patient the drug and within four months tell us did it work or not, and then we'll be able to calculate the accuracy of our assay. So that's what we're doing right now in our study. However, as we look forward, um, after the clinical validation study is done, we're going to make this available to oncologists and their patients um, as a laboratory-developed test. And we've been talking to our oncology partners um, about what they would like to see, and for the most part, our oncology partners simply want us to test monotherapies. You know, they want us to test each of, you know, you know lenalidomide, pomalidomide, dexamethasone, um, carfilzomib, bortezomib, um, as as monotherapies, and then they will make the decision about which of those. Monotherapies to combine to give to the patient based on all the other patient considerations, so we can do both, and we will do both, but we think our study is going to be more about combinations, and our commercial product will be more about monotherapies
1: Mhm, great. well, I want to come back to your clinical study because I want to learn more about that and how how you 're doing that and who you 're including and things like that. But um, let me go back to some questions um, like how when you 're doing this testing. How long do you need to keep these, this bone marrow sample alive? And I know when you were talking earlier, uh, and I've heard this from other investigators before, sometimes you can take myeloma cells out and, um, and they don't stay alive very well without the bone marrow microenvironment. So what's the relationship with the bone marrow microenvironment in your test? And uh, like how long do these cells need to stay alive?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question, one we've investigated pretty, pretty thoroughly. So w- if you leave the cells in the bone marrow, then, indeed they're, they're happy and healthy for, for many days. I'm um, really you know, does infusions and leaves them in marrow at room temperature for two days, and, and they're just fine. And, just, and so we use that fact to ship cells overnight. So when a patient gets a biopsy, we leave the cells in the marrow, and then we ship them overnight to our lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts. In our lab, when we open the the overnight shipping container in the morning, uh, the first thing we do is purify the cells, take them out using CD138 positive markers, we take them out of the bone marrow. At that point, the clock starts ticking. And what we found is that myeloma cells um, mostly die at 36 hours after purifying them. Hmm. So, and that again would defeat most assays that would take many days to grow up cells and it just wouldn't work. But fortunately, our technology, our technology is same day. We make all of the measurements the same day that we purify the cells. So we purify the cells in the morning. We spend the work day making all of the measurements we need to make. Then we do the, the computer analysis, produce a report, and can actually have it back to the oncologist at the end of the day. So that one-day process enables us to use the purified myeloma cells. While they're still kind of relatively happy and healthy, if it took three or four days, it wouldn't work.
1: Yeah, that's really remarkable. I've never heard of a process that fast. That's truly amazing. Um, also, when you first started talking about cancer cells and their weight, they, you were talking a little bit about cancer cells dying of maybe natural causes versus dying because of cancer therapy, and that that there's a you know this tiny weight difference. How do you tell if they're Um, dying by these natural causes uh, versus dying? Is it just the weight? Are there other indicators? Um, Or is that the thing that you're tracking?
0: Yeah, we we actually apply a sort of a control to every single test that we we do just to take that factor, natural cell death, out of the equation. Here's how it works. Whenever we're going to test a sample against a drug, we take the sample and we split it in two. And what we do is we apply the drug to half of the sample and we do not apply the drug to the other half of the sample. And then we measure the weight change of the cells in each half of the sample over a period of a few hours. And the number of hours depends actually on the kinetics of the individual drug and we kind of know how fast each drug works. At the end of that time, a few hours, we compare the weight changes of the sample with drug and the sample without drug. If the weight changes are basically the same, then the drug did nothing but if the weight changes are are measurably, markedly different, then it means, aha, everything else was the same, but this drug caused a significant weight change in this half of the sample. Therefore, this drug is effective for this particular cancer at this moment in time.
1: Okay, that's really fascinating. And then um, when you measure the weight change, uh, is there, like, let's say you're comparing different drugs. So you've got, um, you know, maybe bortezomib or maybe dexamethasone. Is the depth of the weight loss significant? So do you say, let's say you're comparing all the proteasome inhibitors together, and one um, has a higher weight loss than the other. Um, Is that how you prioritize?
0: It's a great question, and the answer is um, we don't know, and it's an open topic of research. So right now, our test re- returns kind of a yes-no value, sensitive resistant. You know, the drug is either over-threshold, and it is causing these cells to, to lose weight, or it's not over-threshold, and it's not causing the cells to lose enough weight for us to say that's a, a good drug. You know, in the future, as we get more and more data, we're going to be able to kind of drill into the question you asked. You know, if, if does, how much does more weight change mean compared to less weight change? You know, is, is double the weight change mean double the effectiveness? Are any of these weight changes correlated with duration of response? I mean, something, mm-hmm. a, a critically important question we want to be able to answer. But, you know, we're, we're a, a young company. We haven't run enough samples yet to be able to have the, the data to power the answers to those questions. It's a, an important part of our future to figure that out.
1: And another question, some of the drugs, from what I've heard from some of the myeloma experts, they take time. They have a delayed response. Um, have you seen that in any of your testing, that it's like some of the images I've, I've understood have more of a delayed response? Have you seen that or not? You just see the weight loss or you don't see the weight loss
0: yeah it's another great question, uh, because you know in patients, obviously the images have very delayed responses. Um, but in in the lab, they don't. In the lab, you know the one thing to That's keep great. in mind is that our our drug delivery in the lab is perfect, right We are putting mm-hmm. you know known concentrations right. <laughs> of drug exactly onto the surface of the cell, you know for known durations, and it turns out that if the cell is going to you know take take up the drug and metabolize it, It it all happens pretty quickly. Um, Now, in a patient, of course, you know, drug delivery is highly imperfect. And so it could take a long time for molecules of drug to get to the the relevant cells. But, you know, we've run about 30 different drugs now across a whole variety of different categories. And and we've done, you know, timing studies. And we use cell lines for these tests. So we were able to run four-day, five-day, six-day tests. And we find there simply are no drugs that take more than 24 hours to act, or at least we haven't run into one yet. Maybe there are, but we've done the 30 we've tested. Awesome. Um, we, just don't, we just don't find any. So, you know, it, it kind of makes some sense, too, at the cell biology level. If, if, the, if the cell is taking drug across the cell boundary, you know, why would it take three days, you know, for, you know, for, the, for the drug to work? You know, the longest we expect it to take is the cell cycle. And the cancer cells typically, you know, they divide in sort of 36, 40 hours or so. So you can imagine hitting a a cancer drug to a cell right at the beginning of the cell cycle. It might be that that cell won't respond for 40 hours. Um, But that's about as long as it can get. So, yeah, we're really happy with this discovery, really, to credit to our partners at Dana-Farber, who found out just how quickly um, at least most cancer drugs, the ones we tested, actually act on cells in, in a laboratory dish.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Well, it's it's truly stunning, the discovery and then the application of it. Um, I was reading your published papers, and sometimes instead of talking about weight, you're talking about mass. What's the difference in cancer cells between that mass and, and the weight? And Is there anything significant about that?
0: No, there really isn't. I mean, this is just jargon from the scientific community. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a physicist by training, and Scott Manalis, mm-hmm. is the professor who invented all of this, is really a physicist by training. We've all... You know, began, brought our, our physics skills to the world of biochemistry and cancer. So, in the scientific community, whenever you refer to weight, you typically write it as mass, and that's kind of the accepted approach. But as soon as we turn it, you know, leave the scientific uh, community and start speaking to patients or oncologists, then we say weight instead of mass, but it, it really makes, makes no difference.
1: And then, um, how do you compare this to? So, we are funding through the Milo McCrab Research Initiative a 3D tumor modeling with the same hypothesis of um, instead of trying to target these things genetically and um, use precision medicine that way, let's test it against all these different um, methods. And so it's really exciting, in my opinion, to see different approaches to this same um, idea of testing the drugs before the patient gets them and not after um and i think it's fantastic that there are multiple people going at, going after it from different ways but how does this compare to a 3d tumor modeling using using organoids or other types of um i guess you'd say personalized medicine but but that kind of has a connotation to just going after genetics so that's not really what i mean
0: yeah yeah, yeah. so mm-hmm. for organoids you know it's a it's a, a fascinating and exciting area around organoids and really serious progress being made um, to, to be able to grow up organoids, whether it be, you know, tumors or, or, or uh, you know, human organs. But, but keep in mind, the thing about organoids, if you, you know, at, if you go down to the, the, the fundamentals of organoids, they really are another form of cell proliferation. So organoid based tumors really are another form of growing up the tumor cells. And so, we run into the same problem that the the, the two-dimensional proliferation assays run out against, and that is, are the cells that are growing up similar to the cells in the patient? Um, And there have been some initial results on that, and, and, it, and it looks like it's going to be really hard and, and indeed may not be possible to grow organoids that faithfully reproduce the behavior of a particular cancer in a particular patient. Now, that's not saying organoids are, are useless. They're incredibly useful, incredibly valuable, because what they really are is, is a, a new drug development tool, um, a, a tool that can identify new drugs, new compounds, and their behaviors not just against you know cell lines, but against Uh, intact organoids that have tumor microenvironment with them. Um, So I think they're going to be very important in the drug development world, but I personally think they are not going to be successful, at least anytime soon, at personalizing therapies to, to individual patients.
1: Yeah, well, it's tough because you really have to have that bone marrow microenvironment be part of it. Um, like you were saying, because that's what the myeloma cell, that's why it's living in the first place, because it has this really supportive um, soil around it. I hear them talk about, you know, myeloma experts talk about it, like, well, you have to not just look at the weed, you really have to look at the soil that's helping this weed grow.
0: Yeah, and we we agree with that wholeheartedly. In fact, we just want an NSF uh, SBIR to um, work on exactly that problem. And specifically, it's, you know, right now what we do is purify, then drug. Um, and, and we are uh, doing exactly what you just described as taking the tumor cell out of its microenvironment and then apply, applying the cancer drug to it. Under our NSF-SBIR, we're running experiments now to drug and then purify. So take the myeloma cells in their tumor microenvironment, again, split it in half, apply drug to one half, don't apply drug to the other half, incubate for the few hours to allow the cells to respond to the drug. And then purify and measure their weight. and and mm-hmm. we're very excited to run that experiment. And it f- feels to us like a better experiment in a lot of ways than we're running now. It's it's trickier sample handling. You know, there's a lot of, of work that needs to be done to make sure that all happens. But during the course of next year, um, you know, we're, we're we're going to do exactly that.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. So um, outside of this study that we're going to talk about in a minute, you can you could a patient could get a bone marrow biopsy taken and ship it to you. Um, and then have you run the test, or have, or you're developing basically a tool that you can that each facility could have, and they could do that the, the, this themselves, right?
0: Yeah, but both of those things. Although those are commercial operations in our future, you know, we're still in the in the research right, development right, right. phase. So we're not we're not offering a commercial test. but yes, there are. You know, as I look out at our commercial future, there are two forms uh, that we'll offer this test in. The first form is the laboratory developed test. And that'll be the laboratory that we're running right now in in Cambridge, Massachusetts, near MIT, uh, which is in a CLIA lab. And we will enable uh, patients to uh, have bone marrow samples taken, you know, shipped overnight in the marrow to us. We'll just pull it out of the package in the morning, run the test uh, over some set of drugs during the day, and then get the results back um, that evening. And so we'll do that out of one laboratory. And you know, starting in Cambridge, Massachusetts, eventually we'll probably move to a much less expensive place to run a laboratory. But right mm-hmm. now we're so mm-hmm. tied to the hip to MIT and the research environment there. This is, this is the right thing, the right location for us while we're a small company. Um, but as I look out into the future, not only will we move our lab to a much, a much less expensive facility, um, in fact, if you're familiar with Foundation Medicine, they also happen to have started in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they've now moved right. their laboratory for testing to uh, Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. And that's a, a, a path we very likely might follow. But the other mm-hmm. thing we're going to well, do is, go ahead. Uh, is over the next three years or so, we are going to um, repackage this technology for delivery to clinical labs. So right now, our technology is not packaged for delivery to, you know, to Maya or to City of Hope or any any of the other hospitals, but we're going through a a repackaging process, which is both a technical process and an FDA approval process. So we will have um, our sort of second generation of instrumentation, um, you know, easy enough to to use and to maintain uh, for clinical labs around the U.S. and around the world to run them, um, and also, we'll take it through the uh, FDA in vitro diagnostic device approval process. So we'll have a, an approved IVD, which gives us, you know, the regulatory power to um, sell these instruments to every, you know, every cancer hospital to be able to run same-day tests, both U.S. and around the world. So, so the first path to market is our CLIA Lab in either Cambridge or or North Carolina. And then the second path to market is being able to deliver these instruments to to every cancer facility in the world.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. That would be so amazing because sometimes um, just having patients have access, local access, is just huge. And yeah. um, it's, just, it's just huge. That's a big issue for myeloma patients, even when it comes to genomic testing or things like that. So that's fantastic that you're working on that. Let's talk a little bit more about the study that you're running, and then I'll come back to some other questions that I have. Um, So this study, you were saying, is going to be run in Boston um, and Dana-Farber and MIT, and patients can send samples. Um, How many patients are you going to accrue for this study? How can patients join the study? Um, And what's involved in in that whole study? What's your, what's your target for number of patients?
0: Sure, so we launched the study um, a while ago, uh, last year, uh, although it's taken a very long time to get through all of the you know MTAs and IRB approvals and all of that, and, but we finally have uh, achieved IRB approval from all six of our study sites. Let me just kind of list the study sites so you know, you know which, sure. which cities these are in. So we have two study sites in Boston and that's uh, Dana-Farber and Mass General. We have two study sites in New York, which is Weill Cornell Medicine and Mount Sinai. We have uh, one study site at uh, at Emory in in, uh, Atlanta, and then we have one study site at uh, City of Hope in Los Angeles. So those are the six sites. Um, The process of entering the study is really uh, uh, mediated by the oncologist. So the oncologist, our, our study leads, at each one of those sites and, and the other oncologists at the sites too, you know have been you know briefed on the study. We've we've trained them. We've done the site initiation visits. You know they they ha- they have uh, shippers um, that we have provided to them for shipping S bone marrow overnight. And whenever a patient comes in that meets all of the inclusion exclusion criteria of the study and which in the in the judgment of the oncologist um, is a good candidate for participating in the study, uh, the, the patient gets consented. To participate in the study, and then um, you know we get we get bone marrow open, uh, the, the day after the, the, the biopsy of the patient. The inclusion exclusion criteria of the study are we are looking for um, later stage patients, so we're not doing any naive patients. These are um, typically you know third or fourth relapse patients, and uh, what we're doing is you know testing what whatever. Combination of therapies that their their oncologists are going to give them prior to the patient getting those therapies, we you know fully appreciate that these third or fourth relapse patients you know may, may have and probably have been exposed to all of the you know the dominant the popular multiple myeloma drugs, but I think the oncologists are particularly interested in discovering resensitivity that has emerged mm-hmm. as you said these we know these cancers are heterogeneous. And what very possibly has happened is, you know, a year or two or three ago, a drug knocked down a population of cells, and, and that was as great. we got a remission, um, and then that population of cells may have grown back up and actually be sensitive again to a drug that worked for a while and then stopped working. So we can figure that out without putting the patient back on the drug and incurring all the toxicity and not knowing if it's going to work. So that's sort of the, the, the nature right. of the study. We're doing that for 100 myeloma patients and, and have certainly hope to have the study completed in, in 2020, next year.
1: I don't think it would be hard to find enough patients to do that, especially at those facilities because those are some of the very top facilities in the nation for myeloma. Um, and I think this would be so fascinating to patients to join these studies. And I love the idea of not wasting time on drugs that are going to be ineffective or not work. So how many different treatment combinations can you test for once you get the sample? Um, because by the time you've relapsed three or four times, like you said, you've probably been on everything. You're probably pentarefractory uh, at some point. Um, and so how, do you, how are you putting those in combination, I guess?
0: Here's what we're planning to do um, when we launch our, our commercial laboratory-developed test. Well, What we will do is, as you note, know, kind of correctly, behind your question is there are just too many combinations to test. You know, if you try to do every possible there are a lot yeah. of five or six drugs, you, know, you end up with, with hundreds and hundreds of combinations, and it kind of makes, in some yeah. cases, tens of thousands of combinations. It makes no sense. So here's what, here's what we want to do. We want to take, do, do two things with our, with our laboratory-developed test. First, we want to test for resensitivity. And we think that can be done just by testing monotherapies, and it really is just testing five mm. or six, you know, drugs. The the, most, the drugs that you know a U.S. oncologist is likely to prescribe. There are many more than those you know approved for multiple myeloma, but they're but they've kind of fallen out of favor. So we're going to um, test for those those popular drugs, but we're going to in addition test for a, a whole set of drugs that are FDA approved but not FDA approved for myeloma. And, mm. and the question is, well, you know, there are, over, there are over 500 FDA-approved drugs for cancer, and there are actually 84 FDA-approved, you know, targeted drugs for which there are no biomarkers to associate um, to a myeloma patient. But we have a method, and our method is to go into the genomics literature and if, if, to the extent that we have sequence data from a myeloma patient, whether it's Foundation Medicine or University of Michigan or whatever we have, go into the genomics literature and say, hmm, which pathways are being disrupted by the mutations in this particular patient's um, genome, so cancer genome? Why don't we, if we find a pathway, maybe it's, a, you know, it's disrupting the EGFR pathway, why don't we go try the EGFR drugs in our, mm-hmm. in our laboratory test? Now, no, no oncologist right, right. would say, hey, that pathway disrupted, we're just going to give you an EGFR drug. That wouldn't, that wouldn't be smart. But... There, there right now are nine FDA-approved EGFR drugs. We, we need so few cells for patients. Why don't we just test all nine of them? And probably none of them work, but possibly there is some other pathway, even if the patient doesn't have an EGFR mutation, there's some other, path, some other mutation in that very long and complex pathway we call the EGFR pathway that causes one of the EGFR inhibitors to work for a patient. That information is gold. And there's no way to get to that information today. So we're looking to kind of step outside the box, not just test standard of care drugs, but test a much broader set of drugs that we have some reason to believe might be active for this patient.
1: Yeah, that's a very personalized and unique approach because I think that's um, that's where cures are found. And um, right now, the majority of myeloma patients are relapsing on the standard of care therapies, and they're um, helping patients live longer, which is fantastic. And there are a subset of patients who potentially could be cured by, you know, being in remission for really long periods of time. But um, there are many patients that are really, really struggling. So. I love that approach to try something that you wouldn't necessarily think of. And it's to try to run a clinical trial like that uh, would be probably disastrous just because, you know, you'd be trying all these different drugs on patients and having their myeloma um, continue to, to, you know, probably, you know, continue to grow in in most but have one or two that it's like, aha, we found it, you know. So this is fantastic that you could do this ahead of time. Before you give the therapy, see if it's even viable—a viable option with their particular myeloma. That's fantastic.
0: Yep, we we almost think of this as sort of a one-day synthetic clinical trial, right? Mm-hmm. It's a clinical trial that you, yeah. you know you try drugs against your cancer cells, but but you don't have to put them in your body and incur all the toxicity, and you get to try more than one. I mean, you get to try maybe twenty different drugs, and so it's a a one-day synthetic clinical trial on twenty drugs. That's a you know a very attractive feature if we, if we can uh, you know if we can accomplish all, all the goals that we're setting out to accomplish
1: yeah it's better than speed dating <laughs>
0: similar in some ways <laughs> all right we're going to stay away from that analogy
1: <laughs> <laughs> so how does it how was this idea sparked you talked about the, the, at the beginning of the show that there was this was both an invention and a discovery um, but how did, how did this come about
0: yeah, it, the idea was sparked. I mean, it's classic MIT, right? First you invent the tool, and then you figure out what to do with it, right? It's kind of kind of mm-hmm. how uh, brilliant technology organizations work. So Scott Manalis and his team invented this tool. invented the tool more than 10 years ago. It's been around for a while. And they immediately said, gee, now what do we do with it? And the first thing they did with it was a lot of really basic cell biology, having nothing to do with cancer, because no one has ever been able to measure these tiny weight changes in cells. It was like, wow, what, you know, what happens when – when, when, you know, in, in apoptosis, what happens when they're, you know, in, in, in put in different growth environments, you know, really interesting cell biology. And then someone had the brilliant idea, gee, I wonder if this could be used for uh, bacterial testing of antibiotics, you know, antibiotics hmm. um, in an ICU to, to do a test of an antibiotic against a, uh, an infection for a very, very sick patient takes multiple days because they have to grow up a culture of the bacterial cells. Now, the good news is bacteria grow really well in a dish where cancer cells grow really badly. But still, if it takes two or three days, you know that can be, uh, that can be the difference between life and death for a patient. So they said, gee, I wonder if a bacteria loses a tiny bit of its weight in response to an effective antibiotic. They ran that test. It turned out that it worked perfectly. And that is in a 510K FDA approval process right now and will be a commercial product. Um, you know very very shortly, and then of course the once the bacteria worked, uh, a, a bunch of smart oncologists kind of looked at it and said, "Okay, could this work in cancer that 's what sparked the idea
1: yeah that 's fantastic and um, I mean this invention came out of MIT, so you 're obviously um, doing this in tight partnership with with MIT, and I would expect that continues as you progress down all these different steps um, in developing this as a commercial test.
0: Yeah, indeed. MIT is very central to our future, our, our, our best partner. So Scott Manalis, the inventor of, of this core technology, is, you know, is a consultant to the company, he works for us a day a week, and you know close personal friend. Um, Scott continues to do research in this field. Um, so while MIT exclusively licensed the technology to Trevera for cancer and immunology, uh, MIT, by policy, always retains the right to continue to do research and development around all of the technologies they develop. So, Scott has recently won a $10 million NCI grant to continue to do research of applying this technology for cancer. Um, and, you know, he's part of the Koch Institute for, for uh, Cancer Research at MIT. So, I, so in a funny way, that Trevera as a company and MIT as an academic institution are sort of independently funded. You know, us by, um, by venture capital, them by NCI, but we get access to the rights of all of the research and development that uh, that Scott does uh, and, and you know concludes. So we're extremely happy with our um, ongoing R and D partnership with MIT.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, I just think it's this is a whole new area of so such exciting research. Um, Going back to the genetics of myeloma, because there's been so much focus on that, it's not. it doesn't sound like um, there's any way of determining um, – like in myeloma, there are a lot of different types of clones, and somebody kind of described it like a friend group. You know, you have like a more aggressive friend, and you have a passive friend, and sometimes – The passive friend is is leading the group, whereas sometimes the aggressive friend is leading the group. So you have these multiple clones or a lot of heterogeneity, they call it, in multiple myeloma. Is there any way of telling which clone might be the most aggressive or which treatment combo might best hit that, that driver clone? Or does that just not matter because you're just identifying what's the best therapy for this person at one time?
0: This is the key strength of our test, and, and you, you've described it well. It's what's the best therapy for that particular patient at that particular time. So yeah. our approach is to run the test, find the drug out of a list of, you know, potentially dozens of drugs that works the best, even if we don't exactly know why that drug works the best, because um, there's so much unknown about cancer, drug metabolism and about the genetics of cancer, uh, that we, we just it's good enough from our perspective to find a drug that works even without being able to, you know fully understand the, the mechanism of action. Um, and then, if you think about what we can do with this test, and it is to use it iteratively so let me, let me describe that. This is how to address heterogeneity. Take the patient sample, run a panel of drugs by that sample, find the drug that works the best, which, for whatever reason, is going after the, the dominant clone. It's going after the majority of the cells, but by no means all of the cells because of heterogeneity. It just works for the majority of cells, and that's what shows up in our weight measurement, that it's, it's working on mm-hmm. more cells than any other drug. Work with the oncologist to give the patient the drug, and then at some point, in, a month later, two months later, three months later, whatever, whatever the oncologist uh, decides, uh, rerun the test with the same panel of drugs. Now, if that mm-hmm. first drug given was effective, it won't work the second time, right? Because it will have wiped out right, the right. clonal population. Mm-hmm. Now there's a second drug that works the best because it's picking up the second clonal population, which very likely has grown up into the kind of ecological niche you know, opened up by the elimination of that first clonal population. And now you could see the algorithm iterate until you run out of cells, and we can just yeah, kind of walk down responding. those clonal mm-hmm. populations. Yeah. And as soon as you don't have any, you know, you're down at MRD, you don't have enough cells to run a test, fine. Call that remission. Right. And then just, you know, just monitor. And if, if the population grows up again, whatever clone it is, just run a panel of drugs and hopefully find one that knocks down the new clonal population. So it's it's the power of... Being able to test many drugs um, to, that can pick up the many different uh, clones of, of cancers that we all now very unfortunately know are, are, are the rule, not the exception. You know, high heterogeneity is, is defines cancer. It's, it's how cancer works, and we think we may have a solution to addressing this heterogeneity that, that uh, could be the first solution.
1: Yeah, it's really amazing because it's so frustrating as a patient to have relapsed um, multiple times and feel like you're running out of treatment options. And you're kind of guessing at that point, you know, like, which, well, whichever combination we haven't used, let's try that. Or uh, maybe we go back to what we used before because it seemed to work at the beginning. And um, meanwhile, you're kind of running out of time. So this is a fantastic approach, in my opinion, to just do it quickly Identify what works, identify what doesn't, and move it forward. It's just yeah. great and amazing.
0: And, and cast the net broadly. I mean, I think that's the, yeah, the, right. the key attribute that we're able to do. And, in fact, we, you know, now I'm, I'm speaking about some speculative things in the future, but um, there, are a, there are a lot of approved drugs for multiple myeloma. I think there are 21 right now. And, and they, many of them have been obsoleted because they, they don't work as well in a population as the, as the existing, as kind of the top five frontline drugs. Well, that's, mm-hmm. as, as, that's a statement about a population. It's not a statement about an individual. You know, right. w- wouldn't it be interesting? And, and these are drugs approved for myeloma. So it worked for right. somebody at some point in the past. It just didn't work for enough people. Well, if you're the somebody, you want that drug. And, and here, you know, it might, if it works for 1% of patients, but you're the 1%, Let's get you that drug. And we may be able to bring back into clinical practice these FDA approved drugs that were shown to be safe enough and effective enough to give to patients. They just don't work for many patients, so we don't use them. But if you really have personalized medicine, you don't care about the population behavior of these drugs. You care about the individual behavior of these drugs. That's what we care about.
1: Right. And that's what Dr. Matsui kept saying. He's like, we don't care what the genomics look like necessarily, or, or we just care how the, is the disease is behaving. Like we should be focusing more on that um, because that's going to be a faster approach to a to a potentially personalized um, curative, you know, idea for that particular patient, which is what you're saying. So I want to all the questions. But um, what is what are your next steps? Where do you go from here?
0: Well, the, the clinical validation study is about 80% of everything we do right now at, at Um, You know, we've, all, we've run a very small test uh, at Dana-Farber. We did it with nine patients. And uh, with Nikhil Manchi, who's, as you, I'm sure you all know, one of, the, one of the leading myeloma docs in the U.S. And, yeah, he's great. Um, you know, he, he sent us nine bone marrow samples, and we made our uh, predictions about which combos uh, would work and not work. And you know, we predicted that six of his patients would be sensitive to the combo he was going to give them, and three of them would be resistant. And we got all nine right. And it was a fabulous study. It's published in, in Nature Communications. Um, but it's only nine, <laughs> so uh, scientifically we were thrilled. Uh, clinically, that's not enough uh, to, to use to launch, uh, you know, a commercial test. So we are we are running this hundred patient study right now, and uh, you know the vast majority of our effort is just bringing that study to fruition. The other thing we're doing is in parallel, we're setting up a CLIA lab so that you know, uh, when that study is finished and, and we're hoping against hope that the, uh, the quality of the results are at least similar to the quality of the results that we got back from the nine patient. We certainly don't expect it to be 100% accurate, no test is, but if we can show it really adds good information for an oncologist and patient to make decisions about drugs, we're gonna launch it as a commercial product. So our next step is finish the study, set up the CLIA lab and get ready to make this available to patients.
1: Yeah, well, we're excited that you're going through this process. I, it's just truly amazing. We need to make a this, to me, this makes a fundamental paradigm shift in the way you think about applying myeloma drugs in the clinic and um, and kudos to you for doing that because it's much needed.
0: Thank you very much. I just,
1: yeah, I just feel like research needs to move faster, and this is a way that it could move much, much faster.
0: Yep, and we, I agree with that. And, and you know, you, you noted at the beginning of of this, of this discussion, that personalized medicine has become synonymous with genomics, and and there are many (laughs) other ways to do personalized medicine, and it's a little bit unfortunate that so much of the research funding is, you know, genomics in nature. It's just everyone's kind of on that bandwagon, and that's what NIH funds, and that's what researchers do research on, and there are many other ways to personalize therapies to patients, not just ours. Um, in fact, there's a whole new professional society called the Society of Functional Precision Medicine that's bringing together uh, researchers and commercial companies who have a fundamentally different approach to personalized medicine. Um, it's a very small effort. It's in, underfunded effort, but I think it's going to be very important uh, for the future of personalized medicine and cancer.
1: Yeah, well, I completely agree. And there are other things like having an immune system signature or understanding the microbiome that it's it's all these different factors um, that are coming together. So it would take decades to kind of research it in detail. It'd be so much faster to just say, okay, well, let's just deal with what we have to work with right now. And here are your myeloma cells at this point with the microenvironment. What do we do today? Like, So to right. me, this addresses an urgency issue that myeloma patients have um, who are trying to make these critical life and death decisions. So, yeah, I've, it's super exciting. Okay, if you have a question uh, for Dr. Reed, you can call 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad. And we'll start uh, with caller at 949-5572.
0: Hey, thanks for taking my Go call. Ahead. Um yeah. it's uh thanks for taking my call. It's been a, a fun show to listen to. And your question? Uh-oh. Sorry, I think, I think you're cutting out. Color.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think we are okay. Um 264 7609.
0: Go ahead with your question. Hi, this is Jack. Um, really have enjoyed the questions and the answers from Dr. Reed. Can you share why, because this process would seem to work across other cancers, what made you target myeloma initially? Uh, um, hello, Jack. Thank you for the call. Um, we targeted myeloma because it was really the, the Dana-Farber researchers. Who um, drove the, the, the initial testing? And one of the key considerations is how do you get access to live single cells for cancer? So, just you know, you probably know that the history of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, you know, Sydney Farber started in, in pediatric blood cancers in large part because it was so much easier to get access to the cells than in solid tumors. And that really was the driving force behind uh, starting in in multiple myeloma. Um, Having said that, uh, Jack, your your question embeds uh, the other question, shouldn't this work in a lot of different cancer types? And could you do it in solid tumors by dissociating the solid tumors down to individual cells? And the answer to that is uh, yes. We are actually running two very small programs, very early stage, uh, one in breast cancer uh, with USC and the Department of Defense, one in lung cancer with the uh, Boston VA, to see if we can move this technology from the blood cancers into solid tumors. Uh, but as I said, about 80% of all of our work right now is in multiple myeloma, because our focus is get this clinical study done and get the laboratory developed test launched. Fabulous, and thank you. Thanks, Jack.
1: Okay, great. Um, I had a follow-up question after um, Jack's question. I know that some of the doctors talk about these precursor cells or stem cells that might be causing the regrowth of myeloma. So is there anything that can be done to to test different – and I guess there is some controversy as to whether those cells exist or not. So maybe this is not a question for today but tomorrow – uh, but can those types of cells, those precursor cells that might be behaving differently to standard myeloma therapies, are not responsive to myeloma therapies, may, would you have any way of testing for that?
0: We don't think tests? we do. It, it's a, you know, and, and we, we know, you know, we've read the, the papers on the theory. It is a little bit premature. Nobody quite knows if that's true. It, it does make an awful lot of sense. But the, you know, yeah. part of that theory is that these stem cells are quiescent, right? They're very quiet. They're not being very active. They're very hard to drug, you know, even if you could get drugs to them because they're not, they're not metabolically, you know, reproducing quickly. But they, they can end up, you know, causing a bloom of cells. So our, our perspective, if that turns out to be true, um, I, I do not despair, because if you think about what we're doing, we're going after the bulk of the cells. And these, these quiescent stem cells are never going to be the bulk of the cells. But if what right, we no. can do is this iterative process that I outlined earlier and say whenever these quiescent stem cells wake up and they produce a bloom of cells, if we, we can you know, now measure that with a blood test using a, a cell-free DNA test just to understand tumor load. Then we can go run a panel of drugs and find out how to knock down, you know, the dominant clones until we've knocked it back down to MRD. And then we just repeat that. And kind of methodologically, what we're saying is, you know, we're really not setting out to cure cancer. We're setting out to make it a chronic disease that has the patient feel healthy, healthy and happy every day for the next 30 years. Um, mm-hmm. And, that, you know, that for this century, that's good enough. You know, some century in the future, we should cure it. We should understand enough about cancer biology to know how to cure it. I don't think we're going to get there this century. So, in in, in the absence of cures that understand these enormously complex biochemical processes going on in cancer, let's turn yeah. it into a chronic disease so people feel good every day. That's that's our objective.
1: Well, it's a great one because you look at other diseases like heart disease or diabetes, and, and you know, the, there is no cure for those things either. So, if right. you can get cancer right. to a point where you can live with it um, and it's not going to kill you, that's great. That's amazing. Okay, I have one final question. What can myeloma patients do to help accelerate your research?
0: The, the main thing they can do is for the, any myeloma patient who goes into any one of the uh, six sites I mentioned, let me just briefly say them again, Dana-Farber, Mass General, Wild Cornell, Mount Sinai, Emory, and City of Hope, um, if they are uh, a relapsed myeloma patient, they should um, ask about the Trevera study. And we have heard, talking to the lead oncologists at all of those sites, um, that, they, you know, that, that a discussion between oncologists and a multiply relapsed myeloma patient can be a very stressful time. And people may just forget that we have a study running. And we would be, you know, d- delighted and thrilled if the patients remembered on behalf of their oncologist and said, hey, am I eligible for this Travera study? I know it's running at this site. That would help us recruit patients into the study. And our patient rec- patient recruitment has been slower than we had hoped this year, even for the three sites we've had active. So any any patient who says, yes, I want to participate in that, will help us bring this product to commercial reality.
1: And does it matter what pull, kind of pull it is? Like if they're having other, um, a biopsy for any other reason, which relapse patients frequently do, so it's not that big of a deal to get an extra pull. Is it okay? To, does it have to, be, have to be like the first pull, or does, is there any um, specificity around that?
0: Yeah, we never get first pull. Our protocol yeah, says okay. we, we want we want second, and we will accept third. Um, we have had we've had so far about 30 patient samples show up for various types of testing, and th- and there are cases where the third poll doesn't have enough cells for us. So um, no, you know, second is much our much 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 our preference. Um, but but if we get a third, we, we'll try it. I mean, we, you know, and we'll see, and then we may just say sorry, we couldn't we couldn't run a test on this one. But we fully appreciate there are other tests for the moment higher up in the queue than our, than our research study, and so we, we don't expect any first pull at all.
1: Okay. Well, um, that's something that the patients can also have some influence on. <laughs> so I think this is just a patient education issue. Um, I cannot see being multiply relapsed and not wanting to participate in the study, in my opinion. I would jump at the chance to do that. So to have more information about your particular disease and to be treated as an individual, that's just stunning. So we will include a link to the study um, with the contact information when we um, share the show with the transcript so patients who are interested in the study can uh, learn more information from those centers about how to join. So, And um, Dr. Reed, we're just so thrilled that you joined us today. Um, this is a fascinating idea and one that I think could really move the bar quickly in myeloma. So congratulations for all the work that you've done, and it's just a really amazing idea.
0: Oh, thank you very much, and thank you for having me, Jenny. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, we're just um, so happy that smart people like you are working on these things. <laughs> so, it's yeah, We have a lot that if, if we can support you and what you're doing to make things go faster, we would just be happy to do that
0: excellent i appreciate that
1: okay well we thank you for joining us again and we are thankful for our listeners to listening to myeloma crowd radio we invite you to tune in next time to learn more about the latest in myeloma research and what it means for you